Hey, daters. Are you sick of small talk and no date being planned? Well, I'm excited to introduce you to First Rounds on Me, a revolutionary dating app designed for modern singles who are fed up with the frustrations of today's dating scene. The app is all about actually helping you plan dates and build genuine connections. How so? Well, the only way you match with someone is by planning a date. Send a date, a time, and a location, and then the rest is up to you. Ready to go on real dates? You can get one free month of their premium subscription with code DOCTOR, D-O-C-T-O-R. Download First Rounds on Me using the link in the show notes and start building meaningful connections offline. Hello and welcome to Reimagining Love. I'm Dr. Alexandra Solomon. Relationships have the power to wound us and the power to heal us. As a clinical psychologist, author, and professor at Northwestern University, I've devoted my life to studying intimate partnerships and family dynamics. On Reimagining Love, I'm here to translate complex clinical topics into tools and takeaways that you can use in your relationships today. If you're ready to develop relational self-awareness and create vibrant and loving relationships with the people who matter most to you, you've come to the right place. I'm so glad that you're here. Welcome to another episode of Reimagining Love. I am so glad that you're here. My wonderful guest for today's episode is Daniel Mate, a Brooklyn-based musical theater writer. For his music and lyrics, he has received the prestigious Edward Cleveland Prize, the Cole Porter Award, and the Jonathan Larson Grant. With his father, Dr. Gabor Mate, he is the co-author of the recently published New York Times bestseller, The Myth of Normal. Trauma, Illness, and Healing in a Toxic Culture, and the forthcoming book, Hello Again, A Fresh Start for Parents and Their Adult Children, based on the popular workshop of the same name. Daniel's father, Dr. Gabor Mate, is someone that you have heard me mention before on this show and is one of today's most well-respected addiction and trauma specialists. So you know that I loved connecting with Daniel face-to-face in the studio. Daniel Mate is certainly multi-talented between his musical gifts, his written work, his workshops, and so much more. And in this conversation, we really dove into the work that he and his father have done together in their Hello Again workshops, which focus on cultivating and updating the relationships that adult children have with their parents. And as someone who has guided thousands of students, clients, and readers through what I call the love template interview, I know the tremendous healing that can come when parents and adult children take the brave step of seeing each other with fresh eyes. I'm so thrilled to delve into this topic with Daniel as he discusses what he and his father have learned through the workshops about intergenerational healing, as well as reflections on his own relationships. Let's get right into the episode. 
Hi, Daniel. Thank you so much for being here. Hi, thank you. Should I call you Alexandra, Dr. Solomon? What do you, you prefer? You should call me Alexandra. Hi, Alexandra. Thanks for having me. It is always it's special to create a conversation like this, but it's extra special today because we're in the studio together. I get to like look at you, not a screen of you. So thank you so much for making this aspect of our conversation possible by being here in real life. I'm thrilled that it worked out this way. As most therapists, I have been following your dad's work for many years, mm-hmm. and um, it has been really influential around how I and my colleagues think about the intersection of trauma and addiction and intergenerational patterns. And now your the newest book, The Myth of Normal, is a project that you and your father did together. And it really is, I know that the general public has known of your dad's work, but this is really the first big push outside of the clinical world into the general public world with this new book, which is just doing beautifully out in the world. Yeah, it sure is. I mean, he's uh, his stature has grown in a kind of grassroots way since the publication of his previous book in the realm of Hungry Ghost, which I think was 2008, 2009. It was published by his longtime publisher in Canada, Knopf. And he's always a bestseller in Canada. It was a much smaller deal in the United States when it came out. But then there was the Democracy Now! interview and the Tim Ferriss interview. And he started started finding, you know, the Internet started being his friend. And I guess he's, he's been sort of a viral success in the sense that people all over the world, including places that he hasn't even gone to speak, have found out about his work. So and then culture, I think, caught up with what this book is about. And so people were really ready for it. Now, even I didn't expect that we'd debut at number five on the New York Times bestseller list. I really didn't. So that was amazing. And it's been just incredible to see the reception. But I certainly got on board a winning team here. Like this book uh, is out of the gate, you know, exceeding both of our expectations. Wow. It's it's magnificent. It is a part of another part of work that you and your father have been doing over the last few years that really is going to be the heart of our conversation, Mm -hmm. which is this work you do, which you call Hello Again. Mm -hmm. And it's about intergenerational healing, how adult kids and their parents can really understand and transform the relationship between them. And this is where I'm just so excited that you and I, that I get to have a chance to talk with you and engage with you and learn from you and share this with our Reimagining Love audience because this is a lot of the work that we do in the Reimagining Love space. And so I am very excited for us to explore how parents and kids can get to know, parents and adult kids can get to know each other. Yeah, and especially to get to know each other in the present. I mean, for people for whom words like healing and intimacy and others might seem beyond the pale. There are relationships where someone might be ambivalent about whether they want to heal the relationship with their parents. And we have people come to these workshops because it is a workshop we've been doing for the last six years who maybe aren't in a space where that kind of word would draw them. At the very least, what I say, it's about updating your relationship Mm. because the subtitle is, and this will be our next book, which will not be Gabor Mate with Daniel Mate. It'll be Gabor and Daniel Mate, or if we do it, alphabetically. It'll be the other way around. Um, <laughs> but uh, the, the subtitle for both the workshop and the book is A Fresh Start for Parents and Their Adult Children, whatever that looks like. And what I don't want to create is the uh, some fantasy vision or image of what that's supposed to look like, some Hollywood ending. It's going to look different for every single family. 
Some people are estranged and are going to stay estranged, but their relationship to the relationship can transform. It fits so beautifully with something that I heard you say in one of the workshops that I had watched. What you say is, whenever I have an expectation of how it is supposed to go, I'm wrong. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to be proven wrong. And to the extent that I don't want to be proven wrong, I am going to suffer. And that Mm -hmm. that was, you described, as your single greatest breakthrough. And so I hear what you're saying about to say healing or transforming creates a kind of expectation then, yeah? It can, and it can create resistance too in one or both of the parties because that may they may imagine. And I had this when we started, quite honestly. One of my concerns was that I was going to have to whitewash somehow some aspect of the relationship to get to the ending. You know what I'm saying? Like yeah. we're supposed to be paragons or examples of healing or whatever. People already look to my dad in ways that I think can sometimes be idealizing and yep. reductive. People see what they want to see in their heroes. And it's very fitting that he is people. He is a hero for people and a resource for all kinds of reasons. But I am where his intergenerational trauma material meets, I'm the rubber where it meets the road. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. You know, when I got into this, one of my intentions was, and again, this, we are not experts on this and I didn't start out knowing the outcome. I wanted to map the territory with him Hmm. and kind of find out. And I wanted to see, is it possible to do this work of updating the relationship in a way that doesn't compromise the integrity of either person's growth, authenticity, healing process, which would mean not trying to force some sort of prescribed outcome. And when I said, you know, anytime I have an expectation of how it's going to go, another way of saying that is I have a belief about how it should go. Yeah. Because my expectations are going to be completely correlated with my working assumptions about the way it's supposed to be, mm-hmm. you know. And, you know, anyone from personal experience observation of their own life can can see that anytime you try to impose your shoulds on a rather indifferent universe, yeah. <laughs> there's, there's suffering in the mix. You're clashing with the way it is, uh-huh. which is just however it is. Uh-huh. And we often don't know how it is until we enter the arena of whatever we are intending to create. And in this case, you know, you're stepping into unknown territory if you're going to take on this relationship. Will you back up a bit <laughs> yes. and talk about who you've been kind of how you and da- your dad came to the point six years ago of beginning this work. I would love to just kind of back up and for, for people who are just getting to know you for the first time here. Yeah, okay. Let me see if I can crystallize this yeah. because sometimes it's a dangerous thing to invite me to talk about myself. I was born and raised in Vancouver, British Columbia. I'm 47 years old and um, I have a psychology degree from McGill University mm-hmm. that I never used and that actually culminated in me dropping out with a kind of nervous breakdown because I was completely alienated from my studies. I much more wanted to be doing the plays that I was acting in and directing and the songwriting that I was doing on the side, emphasis on on the side. And it took me 10 years later after a 20s spent pretty listless, depressed and resigned and still doing my artistic pursuits, but on the margins of working odd jobs that I finally realized, you know what? I'm not a psychologist. I was never meant to do that degree, or maybe I was, but only so I could learn something yeah. about myself that that it's important to emphasize what I love. And what do I love is music and theater. And at that point, 
late 20s, I looked around, found a graduate program at NYU in musical theater writing, of all things. And I didn't consider myself a musical theater fan, but I loved all the components of it, music and theater and storytelling. Hmm. And so I went to New York, got that degree, lived there for another 10 years, have been writing musicals ever since. I've won some awards for my musical theater lyrics and music, something I love very passionately. At a certain point, I left New York and had a marriage misadventure back out in my hometown of Vancouver, mm -hmm. uh, which lasted exactly two years to the day, hmm. at least wow. the, the married part of it. And that fast-tracked a whole lot of other catastrophic learning seems to be my MO. Like, that's the way I sure. I learn. Uh -huh. You know, it, uh -huh. I, I, I learned through cataclysm in my life. And I wouldn't trade it in, actually. It's pretty unpleasant at the time, and it rocks you, but... You get a good distance in a short period of time when everything falls apart. And I've had things, a lot of things fall apart. And they always come back together in a way that I'm grateful for. So then there was the aftermath of that. And then more recently, about a year ago, I decided, you know what? Musical theater is back online. COVID is, right. the world is waking up from COVID. My shows are not going to produce themselves. They're not going to advocate for themselves. And I had an experience just over a year ago where I was in a Mexican immigration detention center, essentially jail for three and a half weeks, including getting COVID for 15 days in there, which extended my stay because I had overstayed my visa. I was living in Mexico for the year with my then girlfriend and we got some bad legal advice and I was waiting to get double vaccinated so I could go back to Canada without, without having to quarantine forever. Long story short, wow. I got randomly apprehended and put in this very adverse and unexpected situation. And for me, an incongruous situation, that's not supposed to happen to someone like me. Yep. I'm in there with 600 other guys from the global south to whom they probably expected this to happen at some point in their lives. Yep. They're trying to make their way northward to the United States. And I'm the only gringo in there. And my nickname was Canada. That's what everyone called me. So I was kind of a curiosity. It wasn't entirely a horrible experience. At the time it was. But looking back, Again, another one of these catastrophic learning opportunities. But what I'm getting at is that while I was in there, the thing that kept me sane, the thing that kept me connected and grounded to some future on the, on, on the, on the outside, which yeah. is not a phrase I ever thought I would use, was my, my musicals. I would pace the yard. <laughs> Again, another phrase I didn't expect to be no, saying. Sure. Kind of singing my shows to myself and reminding myself I created that and that's precious to me. And if I was to die without having really fully committed to that again, you know, having left it behind when I got married, having been afraid to go back, mm -hmm. if I was to die without having returned, like Luke Skywalker returns to complete his training with Yoda, you know, if I was to die without having done that, that would be the regret of all regrets. Mm -hmm. And so I just decided very, very spontaneously, I'm moving back to New York. And I got in my car and I drove and I've been there since last November. So that's where I live now. And I'm, that's what I'm up to. Plus, wow. I'm now a co-author and talking to people on shows like this about a whole bunch of other things. So, you know, life is currently exploding outward in all kinds of exciting but uncontrolled and unpredictable directions. It's really clear to me. I mean, as I sort of get to know your work and how you, how you bridge, well, what's clear to me is that you bridge 
the world of your art, your music and your theater with the world of the work that you're doing with your father and then sharing with all of us so that we can learn from that work, right? Like I just, even to the literal level of, I've watched you give a talk where you're integrating song lyrics and you're using the evolution of your own song lyrics right. to describe the evolution of your relationship with your father. So, you know, at that level, but, but it also is that you bring, I mean, we all get to benefit from the ways in which your devotion to your craft and your art then helps you make sense of everything that's happening in your life and your relationship with your dad that then becomes a teaching. Like the two of you are using your relationship as a teaching tool in a way that's very unique and powerful. Yeah, well, I can't tell you how moved I am actually to hear you say that because that's always been my prime. There's a concern nagging in my head. It's that, oh, you're, you're split. Like you do all these different things, but what does it all amount to? Like, uh, and you know, so it's like multiple personality imposter syndrome, hmm. you know, that you, there's nothing coherent about you. And I've recently started debunking that for myself. I, I feel much more coherent, but to hear that something cohesive comes across in what I do. And certainly, you know, throughout this book, my writing style, my way with words, my lyricist instinct, my love of pop culture. I mean, any pop culture reference in this book more recent than Great Balls of Fire <laughs> was me. Uh, <laughs> takes some of us a long time or a certain amount of time to get to that place. But to have a sense that there's a, a unified purpose behind what we do, even if we are polymaths, even if we do mm -hmm. a bunch of things. And I wouldn't have it any other way. I'm not I'm not built to do you know, one thing inside of one institution. I, I love the, the diversity, but it's um, it's so important to me that it come from one source and that you can see that is very gratifying. Mm. I hear that kind of both and, right? The both and is this is my truth. This is who I am. I am all of this. But in the end being, I'm, I have concerns about is it, frag, is it multiplicity or is it fragmentation? It's so clear to me how they inform each other. And I imagine how, as any artist does, I imagine how that there was healing through your art, right? That then allows you your own self-growth and development that you've done through your art then helps you even have the possibility of doing this work with your dad that so many of us couldn't imagine doing this kind of work with our own with our own parent. Yeah. I'm a little agnostic on the question of the connection between my art and my healing. Mm -hmm. I might have to get a few decades down the line to look back. I do know that it's not automatic. And so I'll just, as one example, back in my early 20s, I was trying to style myself as a singer-songwriter in the mold of Ani DeFranco. Mm -hmm. You know, confessional personal, aggressive guitar playing, lyrics that really catch your attention, sort of an exegesis of the most difficult things in one's life, but with some humor and some wit and some edge. And I, ha I, I made an album called Through These Parts Alone. And the cover was me sitting cross-legged in a field about 100 yards away from the camera, like just a tiny little speck almost a perfect artistic expression of how I had felt through most of my life. Hmm. Isolated, alienated, special, but not in a good way. And there were songs on it uh, about all kinds of very personal things, including an angry song of emancipation from my parents, which was anything but emancipatory. You know, it was actually really an expression of how 
unextricated I felt from the relationship, just how fused we were, but it was like demanding freedom. And I made this album and I imagined putting it out in the world. And again, this is what, you know, when you don't inspect what you expect, you know, <laughs> you're going to huh. be in for some shocks. And I expected that I'd put it out in the world and people would be raptured and I would feel liberated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I couldn't even get the, most of the CDs out of the boxes. They yeah. stayed, they languished in my parents' basement, in my parents' basement, mind yep, you, yep, yep, yep. for years. Meaningful. <laughs> Meaningful. <laughs> I did do some shows and people responded very, very well, but some part of me was embarrassed. And some, it, it was like too, I was giving away too much. Now, when I moved to musical theater, one of the nice things about that is I can put my words in other people's mouths, yeah. other characters, other actors who have better voices than me, different genders, different races, different ages, different temperaments. So to see myself kind of, to ventriloquize myself, if that's a verb, out into other people's uh, voices was really helpful. And then I was able to write songs about people who are in search of healing. Mm -hmm. And I was able, I think, to communicate things that other people found healing to hear. I can't say that as I did that, I gained like healing points, like one would in a video game or something like that. Like, but that's kind <laughs> of how I would have liked it to have right. gone. Like health points, you know, go, yeah. it's more that it increased my sense of living true to my purpose or my vocation in the world or what I'm supposed to be doing. And that's healthy or healing in some, like, if healing is the movement towards wholeness, well, one part of wholeness is a sense of doing valuable work in the world. So that was valuable. But just because I sang about or wrote songs about content that could be construed as healing or therapeutic or cathartic doesn't mean that I had the catharsis. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Again, it's, um, it's a nuanced thing. But that said, I think life has just forced me to heal whether it's artistic challenges, interpersonal challenges, romantic challenges, family challenges, existential challenges. You know, the, the healing comes from sources I don't expect at times when I would rather be doing something else. else. Yeah. But again, it's not, it, I'm not driving the bus. It's life has a curriculum and I'm, these days I'm just trying to get with it. Hmm. Do you feel like you're at a crossroads in your love life? Maybe you are sick of modern dating or wondering if the person that you're with is your person. Whatever your situation, I have the perfect podcast for you, Dateable. Dateable is your insider's look into modern dating, hosted by Julie Krafchick and Yue Shu. Julie and Yue bring a sense of humor to their insightful explorations of all things dating, turning matches into actual dates, the psychology of relationships, red flags, attachment styles, and so much more. I am proud to have been a guest on their podcast three times. So if you're looking for a great starting point, check out my latest episode with them when you're ready and they're not. I'll put a link at the bottom of the show notes. Wherever you start, this podcast is going to help you feel inspired to date differently and create a love life that works for you. Subscribe to Dateable wherever you get your podcasts. When I'm watching you and your father do this work, I am so deeply identified with both of you. You know, I am, you know, just right around your age and with an aging, you know, aging parents and forever kind of examining, reflecting on 
who I am to them, who they've been to me, the degree to which the up, the relationship can be updated towards what end. And I'm also at the very same time at that really tender part of having emerging adults. We have an eight, a, a 20-year-old and almost 18-year-old. Mm-hmm. And there is, I had a moment as I've been sort of reflecting on this conversation that it's like for me, I'm so in touch, you know, as as your father, and I, I want you to talk about this, your father was so in touch with all of the ways that his trauma shaped the space between the two of you mm-hmm. in a way that ultimately does not left you with a particular set of challenges. And that is, I suspect, I suspect and project that that will be my children's. Like there, I had a recent experience with our daughter where she was going through something and I was, you know, in my mind, I was helping her debrief and make sense of something that was painful. And she said, mom, I hear how very deeply you want this to be your fault. <laughs> and it's not. Right? But that is like, I, so I feel like I'm so identified with all of these roles and that sort of middle space of my own having been parented mm-hmm. and parenting. Mm-hmm. But you speak really exquisitely about the dynamic between you and your father, where he was so verbal with you mm-hmm. around his trauma and how he imagined his trauma then shaped you. Well, that's the key right there, how he imagined it. How he imagined it. And I'll say we're, we might be around the same age, but our lived experience is very different because I haven't had kids. Mm-hmm. Not because I don't think I'd be good at it, not because I haven't on some level wanted it, but because whatever my traumatic imprints are, they've um, – or maybe just life. Who knows why right. anything happens or doesn't happen. But relationships haven't been something that have gotten to that point, mm-hmm. including my marriage. Mm-hmm contrary to what I expected once again. But yeah, I mean, so but, but what that means is that in this work with my dad, I haven't developed the other perspective. Like you're, you can see it from both sides, right? Mm-hmm. I still only see it from the adult child perspective because I'm not a parent. Mm-hmm. So I'm very much, very much in that. I'm not at all torn between two different roles, mm-hmm. which has its upsides and its downsides. There is something extraordinary about having a father who, when you're 10 years old and you come home crestfallen because you're having social difficulties, will sort of matter-of-factly explain that you have a hard time reading social cues and have since you were very young, and it probably has something to do with the stress in the home when you were young, and that has to do with both his Holocaust trauma and my mother's childhood trauma and their unresolved things. Being a precocious kid, my brain was always racing to catch up with the above my level information. Formulation. In the, 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 the formulation. In the formulations, right? right? Because that's how I stayed close to him. Mm-hmm. Now, that was the trauma. Mm-hmm. Or that's one piece of it. The grinding of my own gears to try and stay au courant, you know, to stay um, with it and on top of it and even ahead of the game and smarter than my smart as hell father. Right. You know, and he's said to me that I might be the only person he's ever met who's smarter than him. Well, there's a reason for that. You know, it was forged in the fires of Mordor. You know, it mm-hmm. was it, it 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 had to be that way. Yeah. That's just I just recruited some of my inborn gifts yeah. to try and get me through a very unpredictable, emotionally volatile, in some ways emotionally undernourished mm-hmm. environment. 
one of the things that I've really realized, especially since we started doing this workshop and this Hello Again work, and I think it really kickstarted it, is his version of events will not avail me. Ultimately, I have to get in touch with what it was like for me yes. and put aside the fact that many people in the world, and I know this because they, they message me and I see it in the comments when I make the mistake of reading them, <laughs> uh, would love to have Gabor Mate as a father. Mm-hmm. Now, I can see all kinds of reasons why that would be a completely reasonable wish. There are things, I mean, thank God for having a father who even has the language to talk about this stuff. I know there are people who can't have anything like these conversations. So this is not better. It's not worse, but every person's, you know, it's like what Tolstoy said at the beginning of Anna Karenina, every happy family is exactly alike, but every unhappy family is unhappy in their own particular way. Well, every traumatized person is traumatized in their own particular way. And the only way through it, the only healing way is not getting information about what happened or someone else's take, no matter how compassionate or even insightful, because that is outside looking in mm-hmm. from someone else's point of view. You know, and so, for instance, my dad seems tends to focus on the first few years of life. Mm hmm. That's the first few years of your life of life. And when of, you I'm, when, I'm when you read his teachings yeah. about, you know, where does childhood trauma start? When I see him working with people and he'll ask them, when's the first time you felt this way? If yeah. they're upset. Right. They'll say, well, when I was 12. Well, he might deal with that for a second. But ultimately, he wants to take people back to the originating incident, which is in the very, very first few years of life. All kinds of reasons why that's scientifically developmentally appropriate. Yeah. And my childhood wasn't three years long. Mm-hmm. It was 18 years long, and my life didn't stop at 18. It's been going on ever since, and it's a continuum. The relationship, you know, and things happen throughout childhood that have left a mark. And things are still happening that either leave new marks or exacerbate old ones. And if all I'm focused on is this contained little story called, I was born into this situation and it was difficult in the first few years, and, and then... Everything else happened as a result of that. I'm reducing my life to a very simple capsule bumper sticker explanation for why I am the way I am. And more importantly, I'm not connecting with what my actual experience was like, because no matter how insightful my father or any parent is and how kind and generous and goodwilled they are and genuinely wanting their kids to heal, and I believe that both my parents want that for their kids very strenuously. The healing only happens when I, as a person, connect for myself the dots, follow my own trail of breadcrumbs back home to what it was actually like for me. And, you know, my folks cannot remember how I felt. They Mm -hmm. can only remember what they saw. And in fact, like I said, or like I alluded to, one of the things I've been reconnecting with is the feeling of having my experience dictated to me through someone else's th- theoretical framework yep. and wishful thinking and guilt and all that other stuff. And so having someone else's imagined version of me live inside my mind as self-concept, yep. that is alienation from self. That's right. That is not knowing oneself. That is being estranged from oneself or telling oneself that I should be grateful because I'm so close with my parents. Right. Right. But really, I'm fused with them. I have no sense of myself 
separately from them. Mm -hmm. So there are snares and pits everywhere, mm -hmm. even in situations that other people might envy. And for me, the actual healing has come. I remember I had a therapist when I was 20 or so. And, of course, my parent, I mean, he had been my parents' therapist. I, hmm. Even back then, I was following them from sure. therapist to therapist, sure. from meditation workshop to meditation workshop, from self-help book to self-help book. I, I took their cue on, on my own healing. Mm -hmm. And he said to me, I think very astutely, when I said, oh, but, you know, I'm lucky because I have parents who admit that you know, they traumatized me. He said, Daniel, your parents have preempted your own anger. Oof. Oof. They got you on their side while, you know, before you could develop your own rebellion. Yeah. And it's true. My teenage years were when I was eight or nine years old. And then after that, somehow I sort of sublimated my anger and my, my teenage angst into a kind of above-it-allness. Like mm -hmm. I saw everything. Mm -hmm. And now I could advise everybody else on their stuff. You know, that's a piper that you have to pay eventually. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> because there's, as my dad rightly teaches, authenticity ultimately is the, the, you know, the second main need of human beings after attachment, which we need early in life. And for me, authenticity has looked like finding my own anger, whether my parents understand it or not, whether they like the sound of it or not, and risking being disruptive with it. Mm -hmm. But the trick with that, of course, is, and I know I'm kind of, I'm spinning off in a lot of different directions here, but it's a very rich question you asked. Not getting attached to the anger expression either. As long as it needs to come out, it comes out. But at a certain point, if I develop a new identity of, screw you, mom and dad, whatever, that's also being stuck in something. That's right. There's got to be something beyond that. Right. It's the anger in the service of moving towards whatever whatever you get to access yeah. when you have allowed the anger to be real and just as it is rather than I shouldn't be angry because my dad tried. I shouldn't be angry because my That's mom right. tried. and I shouldn't be angry because other people had it worse and I shouldn't be angry in allowing your anger to be just exactly as it is. Yes. It becomes whatever, the, the energy of whatever is after that or beyond it or. Well, exactly. Then the emotions can do what emotions are supposed to do, which is to move. Um, once you connect those dots you know, and, and again, my dad's method is called compassionate inquiry. If you can inquire compassionately, I can see the value in my dad's work. I might be the person most inoculated against it on the planet. Like I, applying my dad's techniques to myself is a conflict of interest in a way. But, <laughs> you know, he's onto something. You know, you inquire compassionately and say, okay, why am I so angry? What anger didn't I get to feel when I was a kid? Yes. And as I've asked myself that question, the answers have just bubbled up from the center of the earth. Well, I think that what I I feel like what's so, well, there's so much that's important in what you're saying. But there's something about as we have this bizarre and wonderful collective consciousness around intergenerational patterns of transmission, which was, you know, listen, it's, I grew up in a psychodynamic program 20 plus years ago. Like this was the air I breathed. Mm -hmm. It just wasn't what people out there were talking about. Mm -hmm. So we're in this moment of the collective, right? Like a, that a show like this can exist, you know, where we're looking at these patterns. We're onto something at a larger level, mm -hmm. which means that now parents are far are going to be far more awake and tied into. Yes. So, so there's going to be many more Gabor and Daniel Mate sort of family. So I think that's what's so important is that you are 
you're providing a template for, okay, parent, you are deeply aware of your own growing edges, your own blind spots, what you had not healed and integrated when you were raising this child. And be really careful about what you do with that. Yeah. It's a subtle and really important variation on a theme that is, you know, the story we hear very often is my parents were checked out. My parents didn't ask. My parents were addicted. My parents were abusive. It's a different kind of story, but I suspect it's one that we have a whole cohort of, of parents coming down the pike who are deeply aware and at risk of being paralyzed by and at risk of projecting onto their kids all of this kind of formulation that we can now do because of. Yeah. And in so doing, they'll probably be continuing the very thing that drives the kid the most crazy. I was talking to someone yesterday doing um, a mental chiropractic session, which is something I do. And this person was looking for advice. This was her stated purpose for contacting me and wanting to spend an hour and a half with me. She was looking for my advice on strategies, tactics, and approaches, those were her words, for how to get her daughters to attend the Hello Again workshop with my father and I in a couple of weeks with her. Uh-huh. You now, know you're honest, you know, like the little beeping light is when, like, how do I get them to, right? Like that's exactly. the little beep, beep, exactly. beep, something's not right here. Okay. Now, uh-huh. I'm a terrible businessman because I spent the rest of this session undercutting my own business. Sure. Because I said, well, why do they need to come? Mm-hmm. And it started out very enlightened sounding Mm -hmm. and very nice and very Mm -hmm. altruistic. And it turned out that she had, I mean, there was a real chasm between them. And this person had a script in her mind of how it was ideally going to go. She was going to present this to her daughters and they were going to be really grateful that their mother was sourcing such a beautiful opportunity for them and going to pay for it besides and invite them from various places to come and participate And that itself would bridge the gap. And then I took her underneath the hood of that. And she got to see how much nasty, guilty, resentful, self-righteous, manipulative energy was underneath that. Which is exactly why she has the relationship with her daughters that she has. Now, that's from her side. If I was talking to the daughters, I would have them look at their part of it. Mm -hmm. But as I said to her, if you want to have a miserable relationship, have it be relationships are 50-50. It's a two-way street. No, if you want to have a, a relationship that you're satisfied with, have it be relationships are 100, 100, or even better, relationships are just 100, my 100. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because that she was living like it was 50, 50, sure. and she was expecting. That's not an that, invitation. It's not an, exactly. There's no invitation no. if there's a consequence to saying no, and there is a veiled, very serious mousetrap that's about to come down if they refuse, which, on a, which most of her expected them to do anyway. Mm-hmm. So by the end of it, I said, okay, looking from this perspective, because she said her intention was ease ultimately for the session. Okay. I said, okay, well, looking from a perspective, now that you've seen everything that you've seen, and now that we've chiropracted all this, and you can see what's going on under there, from the perspective of maximum ease, if you want to increase ease in your life and in the relationship with your daughters, what do you think there is to do about this workshop? She said, book my plane ticket and book my own ticket for the workshop. And I said, cool. And what are you going to tell your daughters about it? And she paused for a second. She said, I don't think I'm going to tell them anything. I said, ding, ding, ding. Mm. Beautiful. You know, you're the one who stands in need of whatever is calling to you about this. So come on out and you'll know if and when. Right. Right. And then they will ask or they won't ask. Absolutely. They will get curious or they won't get curious. Yeah. The script I like to imagine, again, 
this is just my script as the workshop leader, would be this person really gets something, sees something she can't unsee, retires some old story, puts something to bed, creates a new intention for the relationship, prioritizes ease, freedom, relaxation, whatever it is, something actually that inspires her. And then at a certain point, her daughters call each other up and say, <laughs> what's you know what? up with mom? Do you know what drug mom is on? <laughs> what happened? <laughs> I kind of like it, but I'm a yeah. little, and that, and then one of my little bone mows uh, for the workshop, which will probably be a chapter title in uh, the book we end up writing on it is it takes two to tango. It takes one not to. <laughs> say more. What do you mean? Well, these are dynamics, right? Yeah. And so we like to some, again, especially like, and I feel like I'm speaking to a, you know, a psychologically, spiritually enlightened audience, probably people who have looked at their stuff a lot, people who have a, a lot of vocabulary around this stuff. I can just report on what happened in my family. My parents would talk about dynamics, mm -hmm. but subtly that was sometimes a way of just not owning, hey, I just did a thing. Like I could hear them with each other, therapizing each other. Yeah, right. Right. Using psychological and spiritual truisms that are, in the abstract, completely true, like your thoughts are meaningless. Your upsets are not based in the present moment. They're retreads of old things. But these subtle ways of turning them around and using them as either weapons or cudgels to protect ourselves from accountability, yep. responsibility, yep. right? So these dynamics that we are in, in our relationships, yes, they are dynamics, but that doesn't mean that both people need to realize that it's a toxic dynamic before the dynamic can end because mm -hmm. it takes two to tango, but it takes one to change the dance or turn the music off and turn the lights on mm -hmm. and refuse to go along with the old shitty rules of the game yeah. that have been inherited from the past. They're unspoken agreements, and they serve nothing but further entrenching dynamics that neither person enjoys. Yep. So yep. it's a kind of, again, 100% responsibility. If I'm unsatisfied in this relationship, let me take on what do I actually positively want in the relationship? What am I doing and participating in that blocks that? And what can I give up? Yeah. So when when one generation, when that mother goes to your workshop, she will have the opportunity to deeply look at her own part, you know, of yeah. of the dynamic. And it's, it's what you know, it's what I hope that someone in, in individual therapy. It's, I spend a lot of time educating therapists about how to do relational work when you only have one person in the room. Mm. I think there's a risk with individual therapy that whoever the client is, you know, the client is bringing you the story of my daughter didn't and why won't they? And, you know, it's very easy to, and I think therapists, you know, I think sometimes will trade sort of comfort and ease and alliance for avoiding the hard stuff of kind of asking the client to look at yeah. what is your part and what is your role and how, what could you do differently to change Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and uh, being rigorous and people, uh, the most common question we get is, can I come to this workshop if I don't have a willing, you know, cohort, if I don't, if, if like my son or daughter or my parent either isn't alive, mm -hmm. isn't of sound mind or body, or just simply doesn't want to, or I would never ask them in a million years. And our answer is always yes, because guess what? Most of the relationship isn't even happening in between you guys. It's <laughs> happening inside of you. Yeah. 
just like trauma isn't what happens to you, it's what happens inside of you, which is one of my dad's maxims, you know, which is and not just his, but Peter Levine, Bessel van der Kolk, all that. Well, the same thing with relationships in a big way. A big part of the relationship, I mean, if you think about <laughs> how does the human eye work, and I'm going to get this wrong, but when I'm looking across the table at you, Alexandra, I'm not actually seeing Alexandra. I'm seeing a reflection, like a photo negative of Alexandra mm. on my what is it, my cornea, and then my occipital lobe in the brain inverses it, right? So, you know, corrects for the photonegative. And I'm seeing an image that's an internal image. And hopefully it's a faithful representation of the person I'm seeing. Similarly with relationships, when I'm, you know, if you're my mother or you're my daughter or whatever, I'm not dealing with you as you are. I'm dealing with you as I think, as I believe you are, as you are in my inner framework. Mm -hmm. And if I haven't updated that inner framework in a long time, it's going to make for some mischief in our relationship. That's right. It's, it's confusing because your kid, right? When you look at your kid, your kid looks like your kid. When you look at your parent, your parent looks like your parent, right? So it is, it's confusing. I mean, the way you're explaining it scientifically is right. It's distorted. And it also is, there's this like illusion in our minds that this this is mom. This is my mom. It's and it is person. very risky to let go of that old story because yes. the risk is if I let go of that old story. What do I do with my grievance? And it's incredibly vulnerable to get to know somebody as they are now. Oh, it's very tricky. And I would even say that and my dad didn't like it when I first introduced this language. I truly don't mean it in terms of it's more the parent's responsibility than the adult kids. Both people are adults. But I said the playing field is tilted. In in a particular way, because when I met my parents, they were fully grown, sentient adults capable of making choices. And one of the choices they had made was to bring me into the world. Mm -hmm. Even if I'd been an accident, quote unquote, they would have made the choice to bring me into the world. I, on the other hand, was a blob of protoplasm Mm -hmm. with no sense of (laughs) identity. I didn't have a name. I didn't know that I existed separately from the universe. I was just this physical organism, right? And over time, the imbalance started to get, you know, smaller and smaller. So now we're at the point where we're both ostensibly adult humans. But I can remember a time when the power imbalance and the responsibility imbalance was just way, 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 way different. And now I'm supposed to up, and it was always in your favor, the parent, right? Mm -hmm. So now I'm supposed to, update my operating system and you have the same voice and essentially it's the same nervous system just several decades down the line. And so there's that kinesthetic response between my body and your body, your voice and my voice. Like when I hear my voice, honestly, I don't think I've ever told anyone this. When I hear my dad giving interviews sometimes and he's, he's talking the most compassionate, truthful, beautiful, healing material. The content is absolutely beautiful, but there's something about the way he says a particular word or bites into a word, or maybe he's saying it with a particular kind of indignation or passion, like when he's talking about how medical schools don't teach trauma, you know, something, I catch something in his voice and I'm doing, it's like, let's do the time warp again. Like I'm back, my nervous system reacts as if I'm three years old and there's a there's a rage storm coming. Yeah. Yeah. And as opposed to whatever triggers my dad about me does not come from his childhood because I wasn't there. He was there. Mm -hmm. Right. So now I am 
it's like an extra extra tall mountain for me to climb to like somehow get into the present with this person. Mm-hmm. And so I, another thing I've learned for myself is I need to really factor that in and grant myself some space to say, wow, this is tough work. Yeah. 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 The, the floor is tilted. That's right. That's right. And I, that's such an exquisitely important point because I don't think that that is oftentimes the, the internal experience of the parent. You no. know, the re- research shows that if there's going to be an emotional cutoff, it is nearly always um, the adult child cutting off the parents. So I think in the parents' right. experience, they are the ones scrambling and hustling and afraid and da da. da. It, so I don't think it feels that way on the inside. But it is. You are exactly right, and well, I agree with this. I, I should add the asterisk that there, since I'm not a parent, I don't have lived experience of the of the special circumstances and difficulties of what it is to update a relationship with an adult child Mm -hmm. after you raised them Mm -hmm. from a newborn infant. I'm sure it's difficult in ways I can't even conceive. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I'm not even saying that it's more difficult on balance for the adult child. I can't say that definitively. All I can say is there's a particular kind of imbalance. There's a particular kind of challenge that as the adult child, I have to keep in mind, wow, it's one thing to try and work through the traumatic imprints through my relationship with, say, my spouse, who yeah. who might remind me, you know, I might be in situations where I'm reminded of early, early trauma. It's a very different thing to work it out in the presence of the same human body who cared for me, who loved me, who bore me, yeah. and who, under whose supervision, on whose watch, I was traumatized and yeah. my nervous system was, took quite a, got seasoned, let's right. say. You know, and it's maybe helpful for parents of adult children just not to be guilty or Mm-mm. hyper Mm-mm. conscious about it, but just at least not in the sense of being like tiptoeing around it. But just be aware that your adult child is trying to do something pretty unlikely. It's a, it's a, it's, it's quite a, it's quite a thing. And, I, and this is why I have so much respect for anyone who takes this on in any way. Anyone who comes to our workshop. They're heroes to me on day one because they are intending to do something that really cuts against the grain. Yeah. Yeah. Both culturally and in terms of their own conditioning. Absolutely. For both generations. For both generations. Yeah. When I touch, as I often do, my understanding of all of the impacts, complicated, wonderful, and problematic that I have had on the two souls that I have raised. It has the power to render me like actually physiologically dizzy, right? It is dizzying, like certain memories or flashes of a moment I handled in a way that I would erase from ever having had happened if I could, you know, so it is, so there's the the tilt in the one direction we were just talking about, but there's the other piece of it, which is just the, in order to be present to updating a relationship, it means like creating capacity inside to tolerate who you weren't able to be in a moment. So it's almost like you're fighting yourself. You're not fighting as in in a combative way, but, you know, your own guilt mm-hmm. and your or whatever it is. Like we have these different prototypes that we've identified that parents and adult kids can all fall into. For the parent, the guilty parent is one of them. Mm-hmm. Sort of just a kind of pre-made <laughs> posture that some parents tend towards. Another one is the victim parent. Mm-hmm. Uh, another one is the child parent who mm-hmm. is helpless and makes the child take mm-hmm. care of them, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. For the adult children, it's the aggrieved child, which is definitely the one that I've tended to the most. There's the withdrawn child and there's the dutiful child. And there's probably others huh. too. Fascinating. You know, 
But as the parent, your guilt or your sense of victimhood or your feeling of helplessness and wanting to be taken care of is emanating from a time in your life before your children were even a twinkle in anyone's eye. Mm-hmm. Is that the phrase? That's how I before always say it. Yeah, okay. Uh-huh, yeah. That's what I always say. Uh, and they are coming along and they are, they are speaking loudly, right? Mm-hmm. Like when I imagine, as you say, right? And I've seen it in my parents that when their kids are around and they see their kids struggling, certainly, they're taken back in time. Sure. Right? It takes something. It takes a high degree of awareness to realize, okay, the guilt is here. Mm-hmm. It's Fear not really experience. about my kids. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's not helping my kids. Yeah. yeah. This is mine. Yeah. This is something that I have to deal with. Yeah. It's right. It's the, it's the two pieces. It's the piece of when my child struggles, it often mirrors a struggle of my own. Very good. But it's also the piece of when my child struggles, it is not that hard to draw a line from that child's struggle to some inadequacy, blind spot, neuroticism inside of me. It's it's that dual, at least for me. And I, I very clearly am the guilty parent prototype. For right. Sure. And or when I'm when guilt comes up for me, I am brought right back to my childhood when I felt guilty all the time. Right. And then I'm angry and resentful and I want to push that guilt away. And whoever it seems to be making me feel guilty mm. is now the bad guy. I mean, I will say. It needs to be different. It needs to be different. Right? And, be and, different. It needs to be, be different so, so that I don't, I don't feel this way. Yes. Grow up. Heal already, damn it. Right. Heal. Right. Will you right. fucking heal already? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, You yeah. intransigent, yeah. stuck yeah. adult child. Yeah. So I can feel better. So I can feel better. Right. But actual compassion is not some, wanting someone to feel better necessarily. It's wanting someone to feel whatever they're feeling hmm. and trusting that better is on the other side of it. Hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like mm-hmm. wanting to, even with a friend. Of course, you want them generally to be happy, right? But if someone is really deep in the middle of grief, you wanting them to feel better in this moment would not be the kind of thing, Mm-mm. because them feeling better is not what needs to happen right now. Yep. They need to feel exa- they need to feel more, not feel better. I will say to what something you said in terms of part of it reminds you it might you know part of your child's struggles might remind you of your own. Mm-hmm. I love hearing that from my parents when I'm going through something. It actually really helps me, and I wish I'd had more of it when I was growing up. When I hear one of them say, you know what, yeah, I've been through that. I know something about that. That's guidance. Uh-huh. That's mentorship. That's, uh-huh. you know, my dad has this beautiful phrase. It's actually, this is gorgeous. I mean, this, this is lyricist quality uh, wordplay here. He says, people talk about discipline, you know, like when he's critiquing a certain famous Canadian psychologist who, who tells your parents uh, <laughs> who, shan't be named. who shan't be named. Although I, I do a reasonable impression of him in the audiobook of this book. Um, That's really good. <laughs> a light impression. But um, you just have to do Kermit, but a little tighter and more Canadian. Uh, but, Can we say who it is? We, yeah, we're talking, I, about, we're talking about Jordan Peterson. Yeah, he's named him. You know, and, and clearly Jordan Peterson is having a positive impact in the lives of some yeah. young men, giving them a, a framework, a blueprint to, to deal with a lot of chaos and alienation in society right now. But when it comes to parenting advice, we make the case in this book that he's way off base. Mm-hmm. And so my dad says about discipline, if you want to discipline your children, look at the word discipline, make them your disciple. And how do you do that? Not by preaching to them. Lead by example. Beautiful. You know, so when my parents have the vulnerability and the trust in me and the 
depth perception to see that I am not them, hmm. then they can actually say, you know, actually, when I was your age, something happened. Mm-hmm. And I had a similar difficulty or a slightly different difficulty. But now I'm getting to know them as a person. Ugh. It's a subtle and vital distinction. Yes. Because oftentimes how it plays is don't make the same mistake I made. Mm-hmm. Oof, that one is like nails on the chalkboard to me. Because right. it's it's the mist. It's not so far off. It's like it's like an approximation, but a but a really not there yet. Yeah, that's not useful. Nope. That's what not, is useful what is, is hey, you just made the same mistake I made. Let's talk about it. Yeah, or like, or uh-huh. like wow, uh-huh. that's uh-huh. that's a hell of a productive mistake. Uh huh. Uh-huh. I learned a lot from that. I wonder. Just, what, I wonder what you're going to learn yeah. from this. Or can we just or, leave or the word just, mistake or out? Or a little more mistake. Yeah. That's difficult. I yeah. know that's difficult. Yeah. Maybe I have never figured that one out. You know. Mm-hmm. Maybe you're going to figure it out before I do. Mm-hmm. I don't know. But I'm just a person who's like confident enough in my own wholeness that having a difficulty or a challenge or a perceived failure isn't a problem. Yeah. It's all right. And we can both be human together. So on a certain level, that's what I've always been craving from my father and my mother. Not more knowledge, not more insight, not more healing manuals, not more parenting books that teach you how to relate to your kids, not mm-hmm. not even more tuition for healing programs, mm-hmm. but just to be seen as a separate person who is worthy of respect and love and who you can be yourself with and they can handle it. Now, the way things go, we can't count on our parents getting there for us. We have to maybe assert that for ourselves sometimes. You know, I, there was a really pivotal moment in my dad and I's relationship several years before we started collaborating on this book, but we had written before. You know, I had edited his books and we sometimes wrote things together or I was sort of a ghostwriter uh, helping him at least with his, his, his writing. And there was an op-ed that he wanted to write for the Toronto Star and he asked me for some help with it. I forget what it was about. And I sent him a draft, and he responded to it with a kind of brusque, what I took to be a brusque, dismissive, oh, this isn't going to work. And exasperated, I said to him on the phone, Dad, when do I get to be your equal, finally? And he said, Daniel, I can't make you my equal. And it felt like a sword through my gut. Mm. I was... I took the wind right out of me. But in the next moment, he said, and I can't make you not my equal. Only you can do that. Oh. And there was a lot of truth in that. Huh. Now, the piece he left out is he can certainly help the process That's along right. by That's holding right. space for it, yeah. by looking for the signs of what individuation looks like, yeah. and by not getting in the way of it. And there's all kinds of ways parents can try to swim up that stream rather than in the direction it wants to go. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But you have talked about that. The, li- you know, the liberation is not, is not maybe as easy, you know, this sort of idea of like my parents are controlling me. Da, da, da. When you step into your own, when you liberate yourself mm-hmm. and take, res- it means taking full responsibility yes. for yourself and your life. And that is perhaps a bit more difficult than it sounds, right? It kind of sounds pretty easy, pretty simple, pretty free. But we lose sight of the fact or we forget that to stop, quote unquote, blaming our parents means to take responsibility. And responsibility is another one of these spiritual 
psychological concepts that it's very easy to come up with a hallmark bumper sticker reduct, reductive yeah. version of, yeah. right? Because some people might take responsibility. Like whenever I hear my dad talk about adult children have to be responsible for their own stuff, what I sometimes hear in that is, leave me alone about it already. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's right. your, deal with it. Right. Now, you can say that if you want, or any parent can feel that way. I understand it's exasperating to have an aggrieved child coming at you for decades with the same complaints. But for myself, what does it mean to be responsible? It doesn't mean to be like, okay, I've been really resentful. That's not good. Mm-hmm. My parents did their best. Uh-huh. And I just need to put it aside. And I'm to blame. Or if I get upset, I'm just going to deal with it. I mean, you can do it that way if you want. But it's just not very deep. Mm-hmm. Like, there's, it's more complicated than that. Being fully responsible actually means responsible for what do I want the relationship to be like now? What do I want to create what haven't I been saying mm-hmm. that needs to be said? What haven't I been tending to in the environment of the relationship? Because the relationship happens in a certain environment of habits, conditions, behaviors, expectations, right? Be, to, to be a fully responsible adult doesn't just mean to like go through life willy-nilly and then respond to whatever happens. It means to create what happens. Yeah, yeah. And to take an active building role and that might involve me saying, actually, that wasn't my fault what happened there. And it might sometimes say, you know what? Yeah, I instigated that. Mm-hmm. My dad and I have had some blowups in the last few months right before the book came out. I completely instigated them. Mm-hmm. And I was shocked to mm-hmm. realize that I was, that it was me. But it was. Uh-huh. It's really, really, especially in this, in this era of memes and, and, you know, scrolling through Instagram and getting pocket Snippets. wisdom, literal yes. pocket yes. wisdom yes. in your pocket all the time. Yeah. To take these things that are deep spiritual principles and turn them into little easy to swallow pellets that just aren't, they're not probiotic. You know, they're not live cultures. They're sort of inert and they just become intellectual or they become ideological. Oof. They become positional. And they can be weaponized. And they can be weaponized. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, well, I think that's a really good segue to our listener question. Oh, great. Yeah. So we have a question that comes in from Jamie in New Jersey, and she uses she, her pronouns. And she writes to us, I've started setting boundaries with my parents recently and have gotten a lot of pushback. Oh, this is a good one. Mm -hmm. I am just trying to do what I believe is best for my children and my family. How do I get my parents to understand that I'm not trying to be disrespectful when I try to set a boundary? Mm -hmm. So... Where do you want to start with that? Knowing full well that if she was here with us, we would ask her 15 more questions. Yeah, right? we want to get a little more granular with what actually is happening. How have you expressed that? Because what was the language she used? How do I get them to understand that I'm... Not trying to be respectful. I'm, I'm not trying to be disrespectful right. when I try to set a boundary. Right. So I can imagine her saying that verbatim. Mom and dad, I'm not trying to be disrespectful. I'm just trying to set a boundary. But even doing that, I mean, that would be the clearest way you could say that. Uh-huh. But that might not be the only thing she's communicating depending on the environment of the relationship. There's other unspoken things that are there. And their parents might be hearing something very, very different. So her question is a really good one. How do I – I think what I'm hearing her say is how can I set this relationship up in a way that doesn't overwhelm me and that doesn't violate what I need, that gives me what I need, but at the same time doesn't put my parents on the defensive and doesn't leave them feeling hurt and disrespected mm-hmm. and discarded. So I'm going to say something that I don't know how this will go over with people listening. And 
if it fits, great. Leave it aside if it doesn't fit for you. Because for some people, this concept of boundaries has been really transformative and important, and people are working very hard at it. So I don't want to undermine that work. I will say, however, that of all the catchphrases out there and sort of popular meme concepts, not, well, I meant meme, like M-E-M-E, <laughs> like, memes. like memes, memeish, but <laughs> funny that I said meme because of all of the dumbed downable concepts out there that have become part of the pop psychological vocabulary and are like narcissism is another one. Don't even get us started. Everyone's a narcissist. Everyone's a gaslighter. Yeah. 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 You know, R.I.P. Angela Lansbury, who starred in the original in the movie Gaslight that actually where that where that term came from. Boundaries is a huge one. Now, boundaries in and of themselves, the concept of boundaries, nothing wrong with it. Mm -hmm. It's very good. But it's very easy to take the concept of boundaries and turn it into great walls of China. Mm hmm. Ridge, reify it basically into something solid, immovable, and very, very unconducive to having a relationship. Mm-hmm. Now, if it's a movable boundary, okay. But the word itself sets up, to me, images of border checkpoints and crossing from one territory into another. And it's like defensive. It's like I'm guarding against violations or transgressions or trespass. It's like a, it's a security measure. Yep. Now, if you've lived your life having your boundaries transgressed and trespassed upon, damn right, you should set some boundaries and you should learn how to do that with people in your life and just people in the world. And so generally as a psychological fortification step, it might be very, very important. Here's how I think about boundaries. You know, think of a border, which is another, you know, synonym for boundary, a country, a national border. Not to wade into, you know, immigration politics here, but I am speaking as a, a, an escaped or, yeah. de- or deported inmate from an immigration facility. Um, countries have different immigration policies depending on different internal conditions in that country. Now, there's also racism and bigotry and xenophobia right. and all that other garbage that goes into immigration. But in a perfect world, even the most enlightened country might at certain points have stricter boundaries for immigration if – There was a massive infrastructure deficit in that country and massive unemployment Mm -hmm. and people who wanted to work on the, you know, the railroads or the highways or, or whatever. Mm -hmm. At that point, we might say, okay, we're going to, we're going to tighten the boundary a bit until when, until Mm -hmm. it's not so costly to us to open it up. And then we can open it up because we have this other value called openness and inclusion Mm -hmm. and welcome and amnesty and all those other things. So it's conditional. Yep. Yep. It's dynamic. It's dynamic, mm-hmm. dynamic boundaries. Mm-hmm. Now, dynamic boundaries is a little clunky as a, as a pop psychological phrase. It's not as easy to meme. Mm-hmm. So the word I prefer is conditions mm-hmm. because the beautiful thing about the word conditions is it has two meanings, both of which apply. Number one is what are the conditions under which I thrive in this relationship? What do I need to be true environmentally? Like when I walk into a room, I assume there's going to be enough oxygen for me to breathe. Mm -hmm. If there isn't, it's a non-starter. I'm not walking into that room or the minute I do, I'm getting out. Mm -hmm. The conditions are not right. The conditions are not right. Mm -hmm. They're not fit for the kind of experience I want to have, which is to say a living one. So similarly, in a relationship, over time with experience, I've learned that certain conditions 
are more conducive to me enjoying being around my parents. It might be time limits on how long we hang out. It might be certain places or restaurants that seem to work better for us than others. It might be frequency of, of calling, all kinds of stuff. It might be that we don't talk after a certain hour. One condition my father and I have is we don't talk when I've been smoking pot. Uh-huh. He hates it. Uh-huh. He just doesn't like dealing me uh-huh. with me. Now, I used to take that personally. I no longer do mm-hmm. because I can see it. Our personalities clash. There's something in me that gets a little pugilistic and yeah. it, it wants to be playful, but he doesn't want to play that game. Yep. yep. Okay, yep. cool. So I that's just an agreement we have. Mm-hmm. That's not a condition under which we thrive. Yep. Nothing wrong with him. Nothing wrong with me. It's just a conditional thing. And that leads to the other meaning of the word conditions. And, you know, when you're doing a negotiation, you set certain terms and conditions and agreements. So you're talking about the environment and you're talking about the agreements between you. And so to bring it back to Jamie's question, which I hope I can do now that I've swung out that far in that direction, I'd say to examine what's the energy with which you're setting these boundaries? Where's that coming from? Are you expecting that your parents will understand the language of boundaries in the first place? It's also a generational thing. That's right. It for sure is. And do you want to be ideological about it or do you want to be related with them as they are? Mm -hmm. What's a non-jargonistic way that you could say that? Mm. It might be something like, hey, mom and dad, first of all, all that boundary stuff, I get. That didn't really land with you. Maybe you weren't clear what I meant. And I might have been coming from sort of a rigid place, a defensive place, because I'm trying to prevent something that happened in the past that was really stressful for me from happening again. Mm -hmm. So I was trying to avoid something. But let me come at it from a different angle. I want to create something with you. I want to create something in my world with my kids. And here's where you come in. And these are the conditions under which that'll, I see that happening the best. And here are the conditions that make it likely that the old shit is going to happen. happen, You know, Mm -hmm. what's it like for you? Do you agree that this is Mm. stressful and undesirable? Whatever. Now, some people, the boundaries they said is you can't, you know, I I do hear quite often, like, I don't want my parents to see my kids. That's a different kind of boundary. I mean, that is kind of a, a firm boundary. But even then, where is it coming from? It's coming from, I have certain conditions in my world. And so far, mom and dad, you're doing your best. I'm doing my best. We haven't succeeded in finding a way for my needs to be met while your needs to be a grandparent, an active grandparent are also being met. Mm-hmm. In a perfect world, I would really like that. And I'm happy to keep being creative with you about how we can make that happen. At the moment, I don't see it. Yeah. So even that, you can see, I mean, that's setting a pretty hard boundary. But even there, you're not framing it in terms of, mom and dad, I have an announcement to make. And you, know, you draw a line in the sand yeah. and say, that's my boundary and don't you dare cross it. Yeah. I think we get into trouble when we get dogmatic with this language, especially when we're pretending to be touchy-feely and enlightened about it. We can be pretty nasty under the surface of language that is in the world of healing and relating. So what do you actually want to create with Mm -hmm. something? And what would be – just drop everything you've learned from Instagram or your therapist (laughs) or whatever. Look at them. Mm -hmm. Look at the relationship you've had. Put yourself in their position. What can you say that's – truthful for you that's in a language that they will get. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a good principle is what we resist persists. So if you're pushing against something rather than pushing towards something, pulling towards something, or even just inviting, invitations are so much more Mm. 
invitations or even just explanations. Yeah. It's like, hey, I know it didn't used to be this way, but I have this new condition. Right. It's kind of just my new rule. Right. And the positives, right? What I, I love it when the two of you show up and you stay for a couple of hours and then you go. Or it means so much to me when you bring both of the kids a coloring book. I love, you know, sort of like framing it in terms of like, what, yeah. here's what could work. Here's, here are the ways in which the conditions can be really healthy. And I, I, I would want her also, it means all of what you, all of what you said is so, is so masterful and it's such deep guidance for her. I also would want to make sure that she's sort of disentangling the fears that she, because to, to be a grandparent and to be a parent are very different things. She was Absolutely. parented by them. And she didn't have anybody in between those two people and her. Mm -hmm. But now they're grandparents and their relationship with her children is mediated by her. She's there and she's a strong and present force. And so the relationship, so so the grandparents can't possibly be to her children who they were to her when when they were the parents. With rare exceptions. Mm -hmm. There Mm -hmm. may be. Abuse, like like yes. dangerous grandparents 100%. out there. We're that's not right. talking about that's that. Right. That's right. That's right. Absolutely, and and that is her doing her own boundary work in terms of what are the boundaries of actual present moment reality. Yes. Like I'm right. not. They're right. not me. Right. I'm not them. My yeah. kids are not me. They're yeah. not little me. Yeah. That the past is not the present. Yeah. That's the boundary that you want to kind of. That's the tennis. You know, net mm-hmm. put the past, the past, in the past. and the pre- right. put the past in the past, and remember that it is. And if you're reacting in a familiar, upset, triggered way, again, another thing is like, you know, people don't want to be triggered. As my father says, the trigger is the smallest part of the gun. <laughs> Where is your handle? Where is your safety? Mm-hmm. Where is your payload? Mm-hmm. Where is your chamber? Mm-hmm. What are you carrying? What are you packing in there? Yeah. Right. So if your parents are triggering something, well, what is it? Well, I'm remembering when my parents were overbearing to me or when my grandparents were overbearing and my parents didn't protect me, they didn't mediate, whatever, Mm -hmm. something Mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. Again, but I'm doing the time warp. If I come at my parents with the energy of you're shadow boxing with ghosts because that's not what's happening. Right. Versus, as you described it so beautifully, like creating something in the here and now from a vision of what could, what might we build here and now? Well, and that is really important. Boundaries are dictated. Conditions are co-created and collect, you know, the, you know, you can actually co-create conditions like, hey, let's build this world. What and, and what that requires that a person do is say. There may be things that I'm not seeing about how I've been approaching this that's limiting or constraining your ability to be yourself in the situation. Mm-hmm. What's it like from your point of view when you come over and drop oh, the kids a brave, off? It's a brave. How question. do I get? Yeah. Oh, I How love it. How do you react? I love it. Jamie, if you ask that question, you got to send us an, send me an email. And but you got to, but here's the, here's the only condition. You got to want to know the answer. Right. And how you will want to know the answer is if you set an intention that's bigger than acting out the script that you think should happen. However you imagine it should go, try to put that to the side and ask yourself first and foremost, how do I want it to, what experience do I want to have? around having parents who want to grand, grandparent my children. Yeah. What, what could it be like? I want it to be loving. I want it to be spontaneous. Mm-hmm. I want it to be fun. I want it to be easeful. Whatever that is, make that your intention and make that more important than getting your way. Yeah. And then inquire, investigate, and invite. Mm. 
And again, remember that a true invitation carries no consequences or penalties for refusal or declining. It's just an invitation. And that is all very, that's true vulnerability. That is. Because you leave yourself open to being disappointed or maybe even heartbroken. Mm -hmm. But that's Mm -hmm. the game. Mm -hmm. Well, and I would want Jamie, I mean, Jamie, whatever pieces of this you integrate and work with, I want you to do with a profound sense of self-compassion and pride and the courage of this and without any attachment to any particular outcome because we don't know how her parents are going to respond to her different dance moves, but we know the dance, the same dance can't continue if and as she dances differently. Now, I just had something flash up that I'll just give voice to and you can tell me if it's unnecessary. Should I like issue like this warning now that I am not a trauma therapist. Yeah, I am, right. I'm not that's a therapist right. at all. That's right. That's I'm right. not. That's I'm, right. that's I'm, right. I'm just, yeah. I just do what I do. I mean, I call myself a mental chiropractor, which is a term someone else gave me. And you might be able to tell why, uh-huh. because there's a kind of direct manipulation. I mean that in the best sense mm-hmm. of using your mm-hmm. hands to go, you know, mm-hmm. get something aligned. And I'm, I'm using language to do that. But none of this is coming from an accredited uh, <laughs> licensed, board, board, board certified place. So right. take that for what it's oh, worth. Well, it's that may mean nothing to you. That deep. may mean everything to you. Right. That's up to you. So I could sit here for about six more hours. But as we move to close, what I would love to do is have each of us perhaps imagine, like, what if we could whisper in the ear of each generation, mm. the parents' generation, and we'll do we'll do the parents first. Mm-hmm. What would what's the reminder, the takeaway, the frame, the attitude that you would want a parent to take if and as they start to imagine updating their relationship with their adult child? What do you want them to hold, mm-hmm. savor? Kind of what's the the bit of wisdom you want them to keep inside of their heart? Yeah, beautiful. Um, and then actually, I'll have one I want to give to both of them. Okay, at fine. the same time. Mm-hmm. If you can, try to see your child's courage in doing this mm. and the struggle of it. That up, that tilt that I talked about, not that they have it harder than you, yeah. not that you should feel sorry for them, but they probably more than you are still in the process of figuring out who they are in the world. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Right? At least they've been at it for less time. Yep. Yep. None, none of us are ever really done with that, but they've been at it for less time. And in some ways, the stakes may be higher for them because they're still, their life is still less formed than yours. It's still, you know, they've got more time left, mm-hmm. all else being equal, mm-hmm. statistically. Mm-hmm. Which means that they're in a very deep and difficult process of, of becoming themselves. And that their challenge is that they are doing that in the face of the headwinds of the conditioning that they are carrying. Mm-hmm. And much of the conditioning they are carrying was incurred in your presence. You mm-hmm. don't have to look at it like you did it to them, but you were present. You were at the scene, mm-hmm. you know. And the fact that now they are both trying to become more themselves and that they want to strengthen or update at least, refresh their relationship with you is a remarkable paradox that doesn't have to be a paradox. Maybe the two go hand in hand. They may time warp at times. You may remind them not of someone else. You may remind them of you Mm -hmm. at some point. Mm -hmm. And just remember that that's not an indictment of you. 
That's not an indictment of you now. It's not an indictment of you back then. Mm -hmm. But they may not be able to help it. So if you cannot take anything personally, I'd say if anything, it's more incumbent on the parents in the mix to not take things personally. Ideally, the adult child doesn't either. But just to remember that your child is navigating through a kind of phenomenological thicket of, it's a hall of mirrors. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? What's real? What's in my head? Is that my real parent or is that my internalized parent? Is that my parent now or is it my parent back then? They are trying to bring a whole lot of different things into one clear focus and then figuring out how to be about it in a way that has integrity for them. Mm -hmm. That's Mm -hmm. a mighty challenge. So if you can honor that by not making it about you. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yep, when yep. it's not, yep. you'll be really helping things along. That's great. That's great. The thing that I would want the parent to hold on to is just to, to be in their own community, like to have their own allies, you know, so that they're so that because it's a lot to metabolize. Yes. And so I would. And so the risk, if, if I don't have the people to kind of metabolize and process and integrate this with on my own, I'm much more at risk then of kind of it coming out sideways back at my kid, which is going to only have the opposite effect of pushing them away when we're trying to hold open the possibility of an update. So making sure that that the parent has got their people, their community, their allies, their crew, at least one person who can bear witness to how courageous the parent is being. That's right. You might not get that acknowledgement from your kid because they're too busy dealing with, you know, you never needed them to see you as courageous. They needed you to see them as right. as as whole. So yeah. just remember that slight difference. And yeah. you're not exactly equals. No. Um, as we say in the book, you know, in a sane, non-toxic culture, parents would have support from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Children would be raised in a village. It's probably a little easier for parents as adults to get support dealing with their adult children. Because mm-hmm. you can just talk to a friend about it. Yeah. Anyone else who's a parent. I think that's an excellent, excellent mm-hmm. uh piece of advice that you just gave. I never thought of it, but that's obviously that'd be a great resource for people. Okay. What do you want? What do you want to whisper in the ear of the adult, the the adult kid who is imagining taking the risk of getting to know the parent in front of them Mm -hmm. instead of the parent that they have been carrying around? Mm -hmm. Well, this is what comes to mind. This may not sound the way I mean it. So I'll try and explain. You don't have to do this. Hmm. (laughs) <laughs> you really don't. Mm-hmm. Someone at our book launch in Vancouver raised their hand and asked a question. You know, we had, we had to say, okay, no more questions about parents and adult children because we're here to talk about the book. But it was good that she said it. She said, I really need to heal my relationship with my parents. How do I do that? I need to heal it. And I looked right at her and I said, no, you don't. You don't need to. Huh. You want to. Something in you is really desperate to. Own that. But you certainly do not have to. This is one of the interesting things about this topic. One of the reasons I think we've really happened upon a brilliant brand and niche. No one talks about it. Mm -mm. You go into any bookstore, look at the parenting shelf. Rows after rows after rows about how to parent your child from conception through college drop-off. Yep. There's books about how to say goodbye to your dying, dead, or, you know, demented parents. Mm -hmm. The three Ds. Where are the books about all the decades in between? It's not there. Why? Because this is a relationship where we just hold serve most of the time Mm -hmm. in this culture and probably all over the world. We don't even look at it. 
It is what it is. It's the ultimate. It is what, it, and we're fine. We actually don't need each other the way we used right. to. Right. right. You are no longer a child. You do not need them the way that you once did. You're fine. If if your relationship with your parents continued exactly the way it is right now, in all likelihood, in most situations, you would be perfectly fine. You've gotten this far with it. So it's actually, and this is where the empowering choice comes. The, the empowering part or flip side of what I'm saying comes in. It's actually a conscious choice that you're making. So ask yourself, why am I making this choice? Because this isn't going to be easy. Well, I might be making it because actually the way it's been isn't easy either. And I'd rather try something new. Okay, well, that's empowering. I'm making the choice to yeah. try something new. Yeah. What, how, how do I orient myself when I'm trying something new? I leave room for trial and error. I don't expect that it's going to go a particular way. I am curious and open, right? As opposed to this urgent, this has to happen which you're going to in which you're going to end up blaming yourself or blaming them and continuing the very dynamics you're so sick of. Mm -hmm. So, yes, acknowledge this has gotten to the point where I really don't want this to continue this way. But don't forget the step where you take responsibility for the choice you're making, the door you're opening, yeah. the territory you are consciously stepping into and which will hopefully lighten the mood. It doesn't get worked out within the next, like throughout the course of the workshop you take with me and my dad or yeah, yeah. two weeks or six months or six years or 60 years. Cool. You made the choice to enter into this arena and you get where you get. Mm -hmm. You're going against the grain of our culture anyway. Mm -hmm. You know, this is a culture where you see your parents on Thanksgiving and Christmas and put up with them the rest of the year. Yeah. And people brace themselves to see their parents. And some of them medicate themselves so they right. can see their parents and survive it. Most people, most of us just survive our relationship with our parents. And there's, we have no incentive to really look into it because to look into it is to open cans of worms that we'd rather leave on the shelf. Yeah. So yeah. just acknowledge yourself for the courage and then own your choice. Hmm. They are not forcing you to do this. Mm -hmm. And you can step out of it at any time. And that's also your choice. They did not make you do that. They can't make you do anything anymore. No, that's right. They sure can't. They sure can't. Okay, the, what I would whisper or want to just like remind is because of pattern recognition, we are far more likely to see the way that our parent is being the way they always were. And so then maybe what I would just want to invite is hold open one little part of you that is looking for what's different. Mm. Like what's what's different? What's the one degree that your parent responded differently or the 10 degrees your parent responded differently? And just make sure that you code it if, if you can. When you can, as you can, code it and kind of land it and let that in as something that is worthy of just – not that you even have to say anything to your parents about like, oh, my God, you did great. But just to know that – and to know that that change, that shift, them not saying something when they could have or saying something different than they would have, that shift is in part a reflection of your bravery for stepping into the ring. It shows a possibility. It's like sort of the – reward for the courage it takes to do this work. And so I want that to just get noticed. Oh, very good. And you can make it a game. Call it a game called That's New. That's New. It's, you know, everybody's favorite game show, you know, or it's like, it's kind of like I spy with my little eye, something that is new in this relationship. Beautiful. And which it. has you be on the lookout for yeah. it. Yeah. You don't need to make a big deal, mm -mm. but yeah, develop a taste bud for it. Mm -hmm. Sharpen your focus. That's beautiful. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You're good at this. We're good at this. All right. <laughs> well, so tell us where people go in terms of getting to know you more deeply and what are the next steps people would take in terms of just connecting with you and continuing to learn from you and with you? 
There is lots of videos of us on YouTube. Mm-hmm. Next year, we aim to launch a podcast as we write this book. During, you know, on that podcast, we hope to work with people like live on the air or in you know recorded sessions, so that people can get a flavor for actually how this stuff actually plays out in practice. So, you know, we have a website that's woefully out of date. Helloagainproject.com. I need to update it. So don't sign up with the mailing list. It won't work right now. But you can check it out. There's some cool stuff on there. As for me, if you want to find out about my musical theater work, which we didn't talk about, danielmate.com. If you're interested in my mental chiropractic work and might want to talk to me about taking a walk with me, because that's how I deliver the mental chiropractic service. You walk where you are. I walk where I am. We use the wonders of technology. If we happen to be in the same city, we can walk in person. And you bring a stuck situation in your life, like a specific thing you're dealing with, not some big capital I issue, but a specific situation that you can't make sense of or you can't get any traction with, and we get you unstuck, that's at walkwithdaniel.com. You can book a free consultation with me if you want to just talk about it and see if it's a good fit. I have a YouTube channel called Lyrics to Go. My dad's been a guest on it. I played him songs about fatherhood on Father's Day and had him respond. So yeah, I'm I'm out there. I'm on social media, uh, Daniel B. Mate on Instagram and Twitter. And uh, yeah, don't, don't be shy. Good. We're, we will link all of that in the show notes. Thank you so much. My more than pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Daniel, for joining me for this rich and thoughtful conversation. I know that this is a topic we can all connect to in some way. And I hope that if you're listening and if you are curious about digging more deeply into your relationship with your parent or with your adult child, that this episode empowered you to take the first step of getting curious about the possibilities that lie beyond what you've always experienced in that relationship. You can connect with Daniel and learn